service to you. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. My name is Dave. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and it's my pleasure to open up the Word with you now. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible. Let's open it up to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, we've put some black Bibles under the chairs. We'd love for you to grab one of those and open that up. We want to get you in the habit of, of opening the Bible and looking at it with us. We believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. And so as we're studying the Gospel of John, we're asking the question, who is Jesus? Jesus continually reveals himself, his true identity throughout the gospel. This week, uh, we're in John chapter 10, and we're calling it the Good Shepherd. Jesus is showing us who he is as the Good Shepherd, and this is in contrast to the bad shepherds that are out there. There's a story in the Old Testament that's told uh, about a man, uh, two men actually, one who is a very rich man and one who is a very poor man, and they both had sheep. The rich man had many sheep, the poor man only had one little female lamb, little ewe lamb, one little sheep, and he cared for that one sheep and basically raised it as one of his own daughters. It ate inside, it slept in his arms, it was very dear to him. And the story goes that the rich man had a visitor coming from out of town and didn't want to kill any of his sheep to make a meal, so he took the poor man's sheep. And the story was being told by the prophet Nathan to King David. And when King David heard the story, he was enraged. And he said, that man deserves to die. He says, that man deserves to die. At the very least, he should pay back four times what he's taken from the poor man. And the prophet Nathan points his finger at David and says, you are the man. It's a story where where King David, who was a shepherd before he became king, and who Psalm 78 said, shepherded Israel with great skill, with a good heart. He was in many ways a good shepherd that points us forward to Jesus, the the ultimate shepherd. Even that good king, King David, failed miserably and, and acted as a bad shepherd. Nathan was accusing him and saying, you know what, this is what happened to you when you stole uh, one of your general's wives. And if you don't know the story, you can go read the story in, in 2 Samuel, but But even David, who was a good shepherd, acted as a bad shepherd. And the big idea I want us to think about this morning is we've all been hurt by bad shepherds, right? Um, That's a metaphor. We've all been hurt by bad leaders. There, There have been people that are supposed to care for us, and they haven't cared for us the way they were supposed to. We've all been hurt in that way. But that's not the end of it. Often, because of that, then we keep the cycle going. We don't care for the people around us the way we're supposed to care for the people around us. And so our hope this morning is that Jesus is such a good shepherd that he can overcome the pain and the abuse and the hurt in our past at the hands of bad shepherds, but he can also transform us into the shepherds we're supposed to be so that we would care for the sheep that God has put under our care. So that's the hope. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. He's the good shepherd, and he's he's turning us sheep into those that can actually care for other sheep as well. So let's read the text. We're going to read in in John 10. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. 
this figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Isn't that interesting? Now remember, he's talking to leaders who think they're just fine. That's part of the problem, right? They don't realize the darkness in their own hearts. So let's continue verse 7. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Amen? That's our hope. Our hope is Jesus. Our hope is not in how good we shepherd people. Our hope is not in, in how righteous we are on our own. Our hope is that there's a good shepherd that fixes all the stuff that we've messed up. Uh, so I want to pray for us that we would understand what God is saying in the Word, but I also want to pray particularly for your hearts, because I know this, this conjures up images of or remembrances of, of bad things that have happened, painful things, or maybe ways that you've failed people as well. So I just want to pray that, that God would give us space to hear what He has for us, the healing that He has for us. Let me pray. God, we thank you that you are the good shepherd that cares for us, and we thank you for giving us Jesus, who not only takes our sins, but gives us resurrection life, who gives us power over sin and death in our day-to-day life. So we pray that you would um, give us that life. We pray that you would heal our hearts, that you'd help us to just deal with the, the hard memories that this can churn up. You'd give us extra grace, and that you would transform us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus is once again revealing who he is, and he's saying he's the good shepherd. And we're going to see why that's important, a couple of different ways, a few different ways actually. Um, number one, because we need life. We're, we're, we're dying without a good shepherd. We need life. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but he comes to give us life. So there's a beautiful contrast there. We also need security. We're going to see how there's this solid security and safety that we have in Jesus that will give us the confidence then to serve others to care for others, to step out. And then finally, we need God, and there's a whole debate about that and Jesus revealing himself as one with God. First of all, let's look at the idea that we need life. We need life, and we see this in verses 1 through 18, uh, but I want to tell you about a, a cross-reference that Jesus is hitting really hard here. Uh, you don't have to look it up right now. I'm just going to kind of tell it to you, but you might want to write down um, this, this passage. You could go look it up later. In Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel's a prophet who is prophesying to Israel after they've been thrown into exile. And so some of the prophecies of Ezekiel are saying, hey, this is what you've done wrong, right? He's accusing them of evil. That's why the Israelites were thrown into exile. They were kicked out of their land by God. But then he's also giving them prophecies of hope, how God's going to change it all. Well, Ezekiel 34 is one of those places where he's, a t- he's talking about what they've done wrong. And he's focusing specifically on the leaders. And he's saying, you leaders have been bad shepherds. You've been terrible shepherds that take advantage of the flock. You have not been good shepherds. You've been Bad shepherds, you're the kind of shepherds that eat the sheep and abuse the sheep and take from the sheep. You don't care for the sheep. You don't feed the sheep. You don't love the sheep, right? The model in the Old Testament of a good shepherd was Psalm 23, famous passage which I would encourage you to read and to memorize and to pray. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want, right? He takes care of me. But Ezekiel 34 is saying, hey, leaders of Israel, that's not who you are. You're bad shepherds. And so you're in trouble. And God is speaking, he's speaking this judgment to them in Ezekiel 34. So remember, the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel, they had the whole Old Testament memorized. So when Jesus starts talking about shepherds, they should know every passage in the Old Testament that talks about shepherds. 
It should just be like click, 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 click. They should, they should immediately be able to call to mind all those things. They, they, they literally had it memorized. You couldn't be a teacher of Israel without having it memorized. Uh, remember, they didn't use pen and paper like we do, so their whole education system was different. Ancient people were able to memorize entire books, and modern people could do it if we tried, but we have no reason to, right? Because we've got phones and books, right? So we're too lazy. But the human, uh, human beings are capable of that, and in the ancient world, they memorized entire books, and they could recite epic poetry and parts of the Old Testament, stuff like that. So, so they knew Ezekiel 34. What's fascinating is that they didn't understand what he was saying. Did you catch that when I was reading it? Is that they didn't understand the figure of speech. He's talking about the shepherd. I'm going to read again verses 1 through 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. Well, what does that mean? That means he's not really taking care of the sheep, right? He's taking from the sheep. He's not giving to the sheep. He's taking from the sheep. A thief and a robber. Verse 2, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. In the ancient world, kind of like um, 50 years ago, if you were a farmer, you would all kind of use the same grain co-ops, and you know, you'd go to central places to sort your livestock and to sell it. They would often house their sheep together in one giant sheep pen and then sort the sheep out when they had to go back out to graze. So shepherds would cooperate regionally like this, and the sheep would literally know the voice of their shepherd. So this is a common thing we don't understand because we're not shepherds, right? This is a common thing they would understand. But yeah, that's normal. The shepherd, they know his voice. The sheep know the shepherd's voice and they hear him coming. And so that's what he's describing here. And he says in verse four, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. So he's saying, okay, a good shepherd has a connection with the sheep. The sheep know him, trust him, follow him. So Jesus is setting up a contrast between the bad shepherds that are basically thieves and robbers and the good shepherd and the sheep know they're cared for and they follow the shepherd. Verse 5, a stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. And this figure of speech they didn't understand. They didn't get it. They didn't get what he's saying. So he keeps going. Jesus said again, truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. Here's a picture of a sheep pen. This is a small one. You've got a bunch of sheep. We're looking from above here in this picture. Um, it's stone wall. They would often erect very temporary sheep pens, right? They would stack up briars, branches, rocks, whatever they needed to. You know, it varied by how many sheep you had, how much money you had, how, how wide your grazing area is. So we have to be careful when we look back at ancient history. They don't, we don't say like, it always looked like this. It was always 10 feet by 12. You know, like it wasn't that simple. But there were some basics that were the same from, from place to place. And one that was very common is whether you had a wooden gate or not, the, the shepherd would sleep in the doorway. Even if there was no doorway, he would become the gate, which is kind of what Jesus is saying. Or if there was an actual gate, and it was a big operation, and there was a gatekeeper, and the shepherd had to walk up, right? There was a relationship there. And so it's a little confusing for us because Jesus is switching back and forth, right? He's like, I'm the gate, I'm the door, I'm also the shepherd himself, right? And, and that makes sense in the shepherding world because the shepherd is one who protects and cares for the sheep. So the shepherd would often lay down in the doorway and sleep there to watch over and take care of the sheep. And so he's describing this here. Um, all who came before me, so truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. Verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the door. 
Uh, elsewhere, Jesus says later on in John, he says, I'm the way, the road, literally, I'm the road, the truth, the life. A lot of us have seen an illustration of what it means to know Jesus, and it's um, a chasm of sin that separates man from God. Have you ever seen this before? It's an illustration where you, you draw a simple line and it drops off big Grand Canyon in between. You can't cross over it. And Jesus is the bridge. Jesus uses similar language uh, where he talks about himself being the stairway to heaven, right? The angels ascend and descend. So he's always using this language that, say, that says he's the one that connects us to God. He's the one that opens up the door. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because Jesus was there. And he's opening the gates to the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. And so that's the same kind of language he's describing for us here. So he's saying, He's the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Verse 10, look at this. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. There's a contrast there. There are leaders in your life that just want your life to give themselves life. And then there are leaders in your life that give life to you. Jesus is the ultimate example of a servant leader, of a life-giving leader. And so we've all been exploited by people who had some kind of sway or authority over us. And in the end, we realized they didn't, they didn't really care for us. They just wanted what they could get from us. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. If you've been hurt in that way, I'm, I'm sorry. And God says that's wrong. He condemns that in Ezekiel 34. Jesus condemns it here so strongly that he actually says that typifies Satan himself. This is an allusion to the evil one, right? Who in the Garden of Eden was the one that only came to steal, kill, and destroy. He said, hey, if you turn on God, you can have more, when really he was, he was bringing death. He just wanted followers. There's a description of this in Galatians. This kind of leadership, Paul is talking about the false teachers in Galatians, and he says this, they court you eagerly, right? They flatter you and try to draw you to themselves. It says they court you eagerly, but not for good. They want to exclude you from me so that you would pursue them. That's a common mark of a false teacher, a bad shepherd, a bad leader. Dare I say a bad mom and dad, a bad small group leader, a bad pastor, a bad commander. These people just want followers. They don't want to give life to the people that they have influence over. God forbid that we do that. Now again, I've said we, we've got to be honest and recognize, and we've all, we've all done that sometimes. Some of us really horribly, some of us maybe in subtle ways, you just kind of find yourself slipping into these selfish motives. And the Christian life has this, this beautiful concept. It's called repentance. We have this time in our, in our service where we confess our sin and we say, God, I'm, I've sinned, I've failed again, but thank you that you forgive me. And so if you're recognizing that in your own leadership, you just, just repent. You admit it to God, you admit it to other people. 1 John 1, it says that's the mark of a Christian is someone who admits their sin to God and he'll forgive you. And then James says the social dynamic of that faith is you confess your sins to other Christians and say, pray for me that this would never happen again. Pray for me that I would be a good shepherd, that I would lead others well, that I would give life instead of taking life. It's so easy to take our position and say, this is an opportunity for me to build my empire, for me to make myself look good, for me to advance my career, right? There are a lot of different ways that we can do this wrongly. So I want to continue with what Jesus says here. He says in verse 11, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. 
Um, that is obviously something that Jesus can do in a way that none of us can. Christianity points to the cross as being this decisive moment that changed history. So that when Jesus died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead, his resurrection guarantees us this life that he's promising. So there's a kind of secondary um, way that we can give life, that we can die for others. We can die to ourselves, and Christianity talks about that regularly, right? We can give up our own rights. We can give ourselves to others, but there's this decisive way that Jesus did that for us. And so you have to come to faith in what Jesus has said. You said, Jesus, I need that life that only you can give. And when you entrust him, the Spirit seals you. The Spirit comes inside you and gives you new life. Ephesians says that when you believe the word of truth, the Spirit seals you. And so the Holy Spirit comes in you and makes you into that kind of shepherd. You begin in little baby steps to be the kind of person that uses your influence to give yourself for those that are under your care. That's a beautiful picture. That's the way the world is supposed to be. That's what we want to be, and we often fail to be. So the first step is entrusting yourself to Jesus, right? Coming to Jesus. You've got to have the literal come to Jesus moment, right? Not, I'm not talking figuratively. You literally have to come to Jesus, right? Say, Jesus, I need your life. Save me from this. Save me from my selfishness. Save me from thinking that I can build an empire, save my soul, fix the world by taking from others. And so you receive the gift of life that Jesus gives to you. And then he begins to transform you into a life giver. So you're now giving life to others. You have life to give. So again, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 12, he who's a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep who are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Here he's talking about the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies that said that Israel will be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. And so it's not just for Jews, but it's for every tongue and tribe. So Christianity is a uniquely multi-ethnic religion. It's where God said, literally in Deuteronomy, I'm going to choose the puniest and weakest tribe of the entire world, and I'm going to work through them so that it's clear it's not about their ethnicity, but it's about me working by grace. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to save all the tribes of the world. I'm going to save every people group. So that's why we gather as people from all these different tongues and tribes and backgrounds, because Jesus has united us. We're not united by tribe. We're united by Jesus, and he's making us into a new humanity. And this is what Jesus is describing here. In verse 17, he says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. So listen to this. He's accusing the leaders and saying, no one takes my life from me. He's eluded their grasp multiple times, right? Eventually they're going to get him. And he makes it clear in his trial, if you read ahead to the end of the story, he makes it clear the only reason they get him in the end is because he's giving his life. He's giving it to them. He's purposefully sacrificing his life for us. So Jesus is the picture of perfect life-giving leadership. And that picture is what we give our faith to. We give our faith to the life-giving leader, Jesus, who sacrifices for us, and that's what changes us. 
And that's what then makes us into moms and dads and teachers and big brothers and big sisters, uncles, aunts, leaders, business owners, bosses, shepherds maybe. Maybe some of you are actual shepherds, right? It makes us into the kind of people that give of ourselves, that care more about others than, than ourselves. And we begin to then mark the gospel in that way. One of the things that we're excited about is, as our church goes through transitions over the summer and kind of changes, reorganizes, we're planting a church, we're kind of restarting ourselves. One of the things is we want to fundamentally change the culture of our church with a, a greater emphasis on service. That service is a, a basic building block of the Christian life. And it's something we've always said before, but just kind of trying to clarify that. That's a primary important thing. And that's because it's, it's giving the world a window into this reality. That sheep who know they are saved by a good shepherd become shepherds who give their lives for other sheep. That, that's, that's the transformation that takes place in our life. The next thing we see is that we need security. And we're going to look at a little smaller section here, uh, verses 19 through 28. Um, we can either have security or we can have insecurity, right? Security or worry. Security or anxiousness. And Jesus says we can have real security in Him. Look at verse 19. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and He's insane. Why listen to Him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now we're going to come back to this whole demon stuff, evil spirit stuff at, at the end. Jesus is actually going to kind of reference this later on in the last section. We'll set that aside for a minute. Basically, they're divided over him. Now look at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. The Feast of Dedication we know as Hanukkah. Okay? This is where they celebrate that they had gotten the temple back. They'd been taken over by pagans. They got it back. Judas the Hammer, the Maccabees, the intertestamental stories kind of tell the legends about that, but there's some real history involved. And so they rededicate the temple, and they're walking around in the colonnade of Solomon. And so he's kind of focusing in on this again, that Jesus is the one who truly rededicates the temple, right? We saw earlier in John, he's the true temple. He's the true son of David. So it's like he's walking around in the temple, and earlier in John, he said, I'm the true temple. I'm the place where people meet God. And he's walking around specifically in Solomon's colonnade, right? Solomon's porch, patio. And basically, we're remembering that he's the true son of David, right? He's the one we've been waiting for. So that's just like a little literary echo there in the text. And he goes on, it says in verse 24, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, if you are the true son of David, if you are the greater Solomon, if you are the true temple, they say, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Verse 25, Jesus said, I told you, and you do not believe. He says, I told you already, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. And again, that's going to come up again in the last section. The works are the proof of who He is. What He does proves what He says. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It says, if you're my sheep, you hear my voice. If you're not my sheep, you don't hear my voice. You hate me and you want to kill me. It's really interesting as, as the tension rises here in the Gospel of John as we're getting closer and closer to the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see this tension and people either hate him and want to kill him 
or they love him. And I would say that kind of mirrors where we are in our society. Um, We've gone through a, a long season that in some ways was really good where the majority of people wanted to associate with Jesus and Christianity. It was good for business. It helped you to kind of look good in society. It was just a good thing. And that's, that's now going away. And, and we're coming to a place where our society is more polarized, where people either love Jesus or they hate him and think he's horrible, or at least the biblical Jesus, right? And so that's not all bad. I know it's scary for some people, and I just want to encourage you, it's, it's not all bad. In some ways, it's a first century kind of situation. And the gospel grew like wildfire in the first century. In some ways, it's easier to communicate to someone that hates Jesus that they need Jesus than it is to someone who's been inoculated by cultural Christianity that has had just enough Jesus to not really recognize the real thing, right? And so here we have, again, this picture, this idea that they don't believe him. They're not his real sheep. And he says, I give my real sheep They hear my voice. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is a verse that testifies to something that's often described as eternal security. Eternal security. Now, there's a kind of funny version of that that a lot of you have heard in the Bible Belt South called once saved, always saved. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Okay, and I would say if you're really saved, you're always saved. That's the trick, right? Because the Bible testifies to there are people that seem to come in the church, seem to have faith, and then walk away. And so the church historically over 2,000 years has debated that. How do you talk about that, right? So kind of one side of the church says, nope, you can never never lose your salvation. The other side of the church says, no, you can lose your salvation. Look at these verses, right? There are people that walk away. The way I understand it, I think this makes the most sense of all the verses, right? If you lay them all out on the table, the idea is that you can on the outside assent and say that you're following Jesus, but, but not really be one of the sheep, right? You can pretend, and that's throughout the Bible. People who join a church because it'll help grow their business. People that join a church because they like a pretty girl that goes to that church, right? There's all kinds of false reasons for, for coming into the life of the church, for being a part of what Jesus is doing in the world, but not really trusting Jesus for your salvation. What Jesus is saying here is that if you really trust him, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Jesus is holding on to you. Faith, in some ways, is reaching out and grabbing hold of Jesus, right? And Jesus continues throughout the Gospel of John to say, hey, if you came to me, it was actually me dragging you to me. It was actually me grabbing hold of you and lifting you up out of the dirt. I have a picture here of a daddy holding, actually, that might be a grandpa, it's hard to say, um, but a man holding a child's hand, right? The idea is the the strong one is Jesus. He's the hero. He's the one that has a hold of you. And so what security does is security enables us to take risks, right? If you spend your whole life afraid that you're insecure and that you could die at any moment, life could fall apart at any moment, if you spend your whole life in that kind of insecurity, then you'll never take risks, right? You're going to be afraid. But if you have absolute security that Jesus has got you, that will turn you into a a crazy person like the apostles that were willing to die for their faith. Right? And so that's the kind of security, that's the kind of security that, that Jesus offers you. He says, nothing can snatch you out of my hand. I think if we have that kind of security, we'll actually step out and take risks and serve other people. We'll actually help other people. We'll be able to give up our lives more 
readily, give up our time, give up our money, give up our convenience, give up our discomfort for the sake of others because we're absolutely secure. We're like, I'm taken care of. Jesus has got me. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I have no worries. Maybe I'll suffer a little bit, but when it's all over, I'm going to see Jesus face to face and everything's going to be good. So there's this absolute security that we have that, that allows us to step out in faith. And this leads to the, the, the final idea. There's a transition here. Jesus says nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Um, this final idea is that we need God himself to save us. Throughout the Old Testament, it's clear that only Yahweh, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, he's the only one that can truly save. No other God can really save. Jesus says something really startling here, the kind of thing he's been saying throughout the Gospel of John. So if this is hard for you to hear, I, want you to just, I just want you to, to try to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. Don't make it about me or our church tradition. But what is Jesus saying here? Jesus says, that nothing can snatch us out of his hand. Verse 28, I give them life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I used to always read this as a kid and think, man, we are like double secure, right? I remember being a, a young Christian like Jesus has got me and then God the father, his hand is like even bigger and it's over Jesus's hand. But I was reading and studying this week, and I was like, that's, I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying it's the same hand. I think he's saying it's the same hand, right? Now, the Trinity is, is, is a difficult doctrine. God reveals himself as one God and three persons, three distinct persons that interact with themselves, um, this kind of community of eternal love that's existed from before time, and Jesus testifies to that within the Gospel of John. Um, I keep doing this timer thing, and it's making noise. Can you all hear it? It's driving me crazy. I thought I turned it off. I'm so sorry. So ignore that. Um, and so there's this idea he's saying that I've got you in my hand. The Father's got you in his hand. And then what does he say in the next verse? Verse 31, what does it say? Verse 30. I and the Father are one. Good job, good readers. I gave you a short verse. I and the Father are one. So what do the Jews do? So the Jews... Picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which, from which of them, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man make yourself God. Now just a little quick aside, the good works, the works of God, the works of God the Father is a catch face throughout the Old Testament for the people of God looking back on God's saving acts in history. So the way we look back on the cross, right? You have a bad day. You think God has abandoned you. You look back on the cross, God's saving good works through Jesus. And remember, he saved you out of sin and death. In the same way, the Old Testament Israelites would have a bad day, feel like God abandoned them, but they'd remember, they'd look back on the great works of God, saving his people Israel through the exodus. And so that's the phraseology here that Jesus is using. He's saying, those are the kind of works I'm doing here. I'm saving people. I'm healing people. Remember last week, he was healing a man. And that man was kicked out of the flock by the bad shepherds. And so they say, we're stoning you for blasphemy because you, being a man, make yourself God. And then Jesus quotes this really strange passage from Psalms, Psalm 82. And what's really interesting here, I'm going to set this up a little bit for you because we're running low on time. In Psalm 82, it's a technicality where the language is used of God calling men gods. 
God calling those other than himself gods. And so Jesus has caught them on a technicality. And you know how the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, loved good technicalities, right? They're always trying to catch Jesus on technicalities. So it was like he took a play from their playbook and he's like, kaboom, right? And he catches them on an Old Testament linguistic technicality. But when you read it, you'll see that there's something deeper going on. So let me read it to you real quickly. Psalm 82, God has taken his place in the divine council, it says, in the heavenly council, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So in Old Testament language, this is a little shocking, sometimes it would talk about other gods. But the language would be that God is the true God. And so the idea of that is, yeah, there are spirits, angels, demons, there are false gods. The world's full of like demons and crazy, weird spiritual powers and angels and all this stuff. But God is the true God. He's the real God. All those gods aren't really gods. So both languages used. We're, we're kind of used to the modern Christian way of discussing it as there is only one God. But in the Old Testament, it would say he's the true God. He's the God of all gods. He's the ultimate God. So there are these lesser spiritual beings. We today would say demons, angels, spirits, right? And so that's what it's describing here. He's taking his counsel among demons and angels, and he is the one who actually has the throne of judgment. And Psalm 82 goes on, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And he's saying these gods that don't rule justly. Maybe it'd be better if we said leaders. He's using the word gods. Maybe if we said leaders who aren't using their authority well. He says this about them. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. So now the psalmist says, or now God says, I said you are God's son of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now this is, this is a crazy passage, okay? And if you go read ten commentaries, five of them will say he's talking about spirits that are lesser gods, but God is the ultimate God. And these spirits who have influence in the world aren't judging well right? They're like Satan leading rebellions, and that's kind of creepy. Think about the spirit world. Sorry, it's real, okay? But about half of the commentaries, and this is the same split that you would have found in first century Judaism. So today and in first century Judaism, about half of them would have said those are spirit world gods. About half of them would have said it's leaders who have God's word, not using God's word to lead as sons of God, right? What's fascinating is, is either way, Jesus is taking a technicality to say, hey, see, the word God was used for, for others other than God the Father in the Old Testament. So he's getting them on a technicality. He's kind of delayed them a little bit, shocked them. But ultimately, what is he doing? He's not really worried about the technicality here. He's coming back to the, you're bad shepherds. You're not judging justly. The God of the universe is the true judge. And what has Jesus just been saying about himself? He's saying he is the good shepherd. He's the good leader. So he's kind of reiterating, I am the God that sits in judgment over the lesser gods. Whether those lesser gods be spirit beings or the sons of God, Israel themselves, people like you and me that know the word of God but don't use that to lead well. He says, you need to do justice. And you're not. The only one who's really just is the God of the universe who cares for the orphan and the widow, who cares for the outsider. That's the mark of godliness. Now, there's a lot of debate right now going around with social justice, and I want to just say a couple of things about that. Social justice 
is not a problem to be solved politically. God continually says it's a problem to be solved by God himself. So I believe there's this tricky balance as Christians. On the one hand, if you love Jesus, it will affect how you interact with the systems of society, right? Now, social justice has become such a buzzword that you might immediately think, oh, if you use the word, you mean this, right? Like, you're a socialist. But let's back up from it a little bit and just say, you should care about society. So the the trick is, on one hand, we say, it's all about God. God does it. And that means we don't do anything to help people. But what did he just say in Psalm 82? People that know justice help the needy. That's what people who are just do. But again, we don't want to run to the other side and say, therefore, here's the political system that will solve it all. We don't really need God. We just need a political system, right? Let's all convert to communism, then everybody will be happy. Utopia hasn't really worked out throughout history, right? And so there's this tricky balance we have to walk down the middle of not getting sucked into the political debate and saying, Man, to follow Jesus means I'm going to care about people. That doesn't mean I have to vote the way this guy says I have to vote, but I'm going to care about people. That's what it means, because that's what Jesus is saying here. That is justice, to care for the weak and the needy. The question is, you know, what actually works? A book I've really found helpful is a book called When Helping Hurts. It says, yeah, Christians should help people, but man, there's a million ways to help people that makes them dependent on the helping. And you want to help people to be free. You want to give life to them. You don't want to take and make them your followers and make them dependent on you in this unhealthy way. Um, So Jesus is saying he's the only one that can really judge. So John 10, 34, we'll wrap up here. He says in verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, we believe the scripture, it's inherent, it's reliable. Verse 36, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world? You're blaspheming because I said I'm the son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Finally, again, they know what he's saying. He's like, yeah, I am. I'm the one that stands in judgment over the divine counsel. I'm the one that actually does justice. I'm the one that actually cares for the outsider. That blind beggar that you kicked out of the fellowship, I'm the one that healed him and helped him and gave life to him and gave faith to him. There's this uh, ancient test. um, If it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, right? Jesus is using this. It's called abductive reasoning. He's saying, okay, (laughs) don't... I didn't even get the pun until just then. That's really what it's called. Um, He says, look at what I do. That's what Jesus is saying. Watch what I'm doing. What am I doing? Am I doing God things? Or am I doing unjust wolf things, right? Am I taking life or giving life? He says, look at my works. The the end of the test, and I'll just kind of summarize this then. Um, The end of the passage says he went back out to the area where John the Baptist had been, and they were like, man, people, a lot of people there believed him. He was hiding from the Pharisees, kind of retreated out to the wilderness again in the area of John the Baptist, said that all the things that John the Baptist said were true about Jesus. Many people started to follow him. Out in the wilderness, right? The Jewish leaders still hated him. Many people started to follow him. What's really interesting is when you kind of follow that thread of John the Baptist in every gospel, well, in all the three canonical uh, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they say that 
John the Baptist was the one who was fulfilling Isaiah 40. Go read Isaiah 40 on your own sometime. But it's this beautiful picture. Isaiah 40 says that Jerusalem is going to proclaim the gospel. Jerusalem's going to become a preacher. Zion, the place of God's people, the Jews, are going to become a preacher that proclaim good news. And that good news is going to be of a God who is rescuing a people for himself and gathering in sheep as their good shepherd that cares for them. That's what Isaiah prophesies. Isaiah prophesies that some way Yahweh, someday Yahweh, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, is going to come back, gather up his sheep, love them, save them, care for them. Jesus is saying, I am, I am that good shepherd. I've come for you. Trust him. Let me pray. God, thank you for the grace you give us in Jesus. Thank you that you've come to save us. Thank you that you give life to us. Help us to be those who use the influence we have to give life to others. God, all of us have influence over others. All of us have opportunity at home, at work, at school to be a life giver instead of a life taker. Help us to be good shepherds. Help us to heal from the bad shepherds in our past. Help us to see the life that we can find in the good shepherd in you. We thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.